Our scripture reading this morning is in Romans chapter 1. It's on uh, page 939 of the Bibles provided, if you're using one of those. Romans 1.18 through 32. I really want to encourage you all to just really listen to this passage. It's a very sobering passage. Romans 1.18 through 32. And the thing is, if we listen to this passage and and it just goes over our head, then we're actually the one the passage is speaking about. So really listen to it. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the Word of God. Thank you, Jason. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is powerful and living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and of joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. And I pray that that sword would pierce appropriately where it needs to pierce. I pray that it would instruct where we need instruction. I pray that it would comfort where we need comfort, encourage where we need encouragement, challenge where we need challenging. That you would just do what I can't do, 
that the Spirit of God would now come and, and would take over and I'd take a back seat. Lord, I pray that you would preach through me by the power of your Spirit for the good of your church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we uh, launched into a new series that uh, we are calling Skeptic. Uh, ten questions answering ten objections to the Christian faith. And uh, we often do this as a church. During the summer months, we like to take a break from our normal rhythm, which is right now we're going through the Gospel of Matthew. So we're going to take a break on that, and we're going to spend the summer uh, talking about some really practical things. And so this summer, we're going to deal with the uh, ten, some of the ten most prominent objections to the Christian faith. And, um, and, and the reason why we're doing this is because we want to equip you as the church to think. Um, nobody likes to be in a position where they are challenged by someone um, who's a skeptic or agnostic or atheist or something of that nature. And, and they get asked a challenging question to be able to sit there and not know how to answer that. Number one, it's really uncomfortable. Number two, it's not a good testimony uh, because we, we are Christians. We should be thinkers. We should be able to have a response. First Peter 3.15 says, always be ready to give an answer for those who ask you for a hope that, that is in you. So we need to be ready for that. So we want to equip you. Um, the second thing is we want you to be just ready to give an answer. And the third thing is we want to, uh, we want to deal, uh, objectively and honestly and head on with the toughest questions that are thrown as, thrown at, at us, uh, as Christians. And the, the, the last purpose really of this series is we want to engage a lost world for Jesus. So my, my encouragement to you up front is that you invite your friends to be a part of this. Um, those who don't know Jesus that aren't trusting in him right now, we want to lovingly deal with these topics, but faithfully as well. And so this would be a great opportunity for you to, to bring them out. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. If you're here and you're asking some of these questions of Christians, we're really glad you're here. And I pray that this morning would be um, that you would find both a loving atmosphere and a place where we um, are, are happy to speak about these matters uh, with boldness and with faithfulness as well. And so let me give you an idea about where we're headed in the series. And uh, you can... Uh, you can just check out the schedule here. We are going to put this on the screen. Uh, today, uh, we're going to answer the objection, God doesn't even exist. And then next week, June 12th, the Bible is a book of myths, contradictions, and mistakes. June 26th, we're going to deal with this objection. There are many paths to God, not just one. July 3rd, Jesus was a good teacher, but that's all. Uh, July 10, most people are good people, and God forgives everyone. July 17, science has proved that Christianity is wrong. Uh, July 24th, God can't be loving and send people to hell. July 31, Christians are judgmental hypocrites. August 14, there can't be a good God with so much suffering in the world. And then the last one, August 21, God made people gay, so how can he condemn homosexuality? All right, so those are some great topics and there are things that we all get asked from time to time uh, as Christians. So please be in prayer for this series. And we want you to invite your friends to be a part of it. And uh, we promise to deal with these topics in a, both a loving and a faithful way. Uh, one more word of preface. This this series will be uh, will require you to think. All right. So um, you're going to have to you're going to have to exert a little effort. As you listen, especially today, we're talking about uh, not a small topic on the existence of God. All right. So I just want to stir you up for a moment. All right. To get ready to do some thinking this morning, because that's what we're going to need to do. All right. So we answer the question, the objection this morning. God doesn't even exist. 
How, how would we answer that? Well, let me start with a little story from uh, Lewis Carroll, uh, who, by the way, Lewis Carroll was the pen name for C.L. Dogston, who was an Oxford professor of mathematics and logic. And he was an eminently reasonable man. And yet he wrote, uh, we know him as Lewis Carroll. He wrote Alice in Wonderland. And so, and, and he wrote it in part to play with our sense of reason and to make a point about the foolishness of illogical reasoning. In his sequel, Through the Looking Glass, uh, Carol opens chapter 5 with the following conversation between Alice and the Queen. Let's consider your age to begin with. How old are you? I am seven and a half exactly. Oh, you, didn't, you needn't say exactly, the Queen remarked. I can believe it without that. Now, now I'll give you something to believe. I am just 101 at five months and a day. I can't believe that, said Alice. Can't you, said the queen, in a pitying tone. Try again. Just just draw a long breath and shut your eyes. Alice laughed. There, there's no use in trying, she said. One can't believe in possible things. Oh, I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the queen. When I was your age, I always did it for a half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Well, it's in that in that little story, Lewis Carroll expresses the way in which many people understand religious faith to have faith in God. We are told, or at least it's assumed you must try really hard. You must draw a long breath. You must shut your eyes. And, and, and only with practice can you believe such impossible things. Well, we may disagree with that as Christians, but can we just take a moment and acknowledge up front that it's OK to have questions and to struggle with doubt, even in areas like the existence of God. You see, because part of what I'm convinced frustrates a non-Christian world around us is when and if we are not transparent and genuine and authentic as Christians. And we don't we confess that we also have significant struggles with doubt when it comes to some of these questions. And I think that frustrates our non-Christian friends. Many Serious-minded Christians have laid awake at night thinking things like this. Is this stuff really true? Or have I just fallen victim to some groupthink perspective? Is, is it possible that maybe I just believe this stuff because of my parents or my heritage or other people around me? And they ask questions like that in the loneliness of the night. And that's okay. It's okay to have questions. And we need to acknowledge that up front. If you're here as a as a professed skeptic, I, I want to say to you that I, I, I'm with you in some ways. In some ways, I have had all those questions that you're asking and more. So so we, we can identify with that. And I want to let you know that as Christians, we continue to have struggles. It's not like we have everything figured out, surely. But we also need to say that there's a difference between doubt and wholesale rejection. And, and what we're speaking about this morning is a complete rejection, a, a, a total repudiation of God himself. And that's what atheism is at its core. And it's to this that we respond this morning. See, in, in our day, the whole plausibility structure for religious belief has sort of shifted. In the Middle Ages, it used to be that it was impossible not to believe in God. 
I mean, it was just a given that everyone believed in God. And then when the age of enlightenment came around, then it became it became possible not to believe in God, but it only became possible. And now in the modern age, it would seem that it's almost impossible to believe in God. And the whole plausibility structure has shifted. And now we are on the docket as Christians saying, you have to prove to me why God exists or I'm not going to listen. And and it's like what used to be a given is now something that is it's like not only scorned and laughed at and mocked at, but but it is it's becoming in vogue and very popular uh, to uh, to just profess total rejection and repudiation of God. Now, ironically, 89% of Americans still would say God exists. So that's a pretty high statistic. I read that this week. 89% according to two different surveys. One was 87, one was 89. That's still very high. But in the last, since 1980, there has been a gradual decline. And I think that we're into a culture now where that is going to become steep. And we might see a sharp drop off. And even if you want to... Believe in God. It's it's like in our age, in our era, it's like believing six impossible things before breakfast. And that's the way it's treated. And so God is put into the wishful thinking category. Skeptics are fond of saying things like, well, God only makes sense to people. And uh, because that belief helps them cope with life. And besides, as human beings, we are hardwired for a coping mechanism. And so Christians are just using God as a crutch. It's a way of coping with life. But my response to that is, is that if we can't trust our belief forming faculties to tell us the truth about God, then, then why should we trust them to tell us the truth about anything? Including evolution. Including naturalistic theology or naturalistic uh, evolution. In, in fact, why would we trust them at all? Why trust our belief forming faculties at all? Richard Dawkins agrees in his book, The God Delusion. He says this. He says, since we are all the product of natural selection, we can't completely trust our own senses. After all, evolution is only interested in adaptive behavior, not true belief. Well, that's a moment of real transparency from a devout atheist. But what about Christianity? Is it rational to believe in God? Or maybe another question is, is it reasonable to believe in God? And obviously the answer to that question as Christians is yes. And I would say that when the Christian worldview is put to the test, it stands up to the strictest of scrutiny. Three things that are necessary when evaluating a worldview. Whatever worldview that is is in view, there's at least three things that are necessary. One is it needs to be logically consistent, right? So you can't base uh, a, 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 a strong worldview on, on the basis of illogic. It's got to be logical. It has to have logical consistency. Number two, it needs to have empirical adequacy. That means there needs to be enough things that you can t- test uh, empirically that show the reality of this. So like the resurrection, uh, we would talk about empirical evidence surrounding the resurrection. Uh, we could talk about archaeology and how that relates to historical claims of the Bible and confirm certain historical claims. So there's a certain amount of, of, of empirical uh, evidence that's needed. And the third thing is experiential relevance. You need to show why this worldview is relevant for one's life. 
And when you look at Christianity, all three of those things, it meets the test of all three of those things. But at the end of the day, science and logic and philosophy cannot prove God. Instead, what we have is an abundance of pointers, an abundance of evidences and clues and pointers that push us to this conclusion. And I would say very clearly, Tim Keller says it this way. He says, there are no proofs of God that will convince all rational persons. However, there are at least two to three dozen very good arguments for the existence of God. There are, in fact, divine fingerprints in many places. And that is true. And that's what we're going to explore this morning. In other words, the case for God's existence becomes cumulative. It adds up like a lawyer in a courtroom begins to amass evidence and pile it up to the point where it just becomes clear that we have overwhelming evidence of something. In the same way, uh, we come at this subject. In other words, the case for God's existence, it is cumulative. Many complex, diverse elements come together as a clear, unified, and coherent case for the existence of God. And that's what I like about the Christian faith is that it coheres as a worldview. It is logically consistent. You can test it out and clearly it brings relevance to one's life in all the most vital ways. So it's not only rational to believe in God, it is reasonable. And the point of this message is to establish that assertion. And here's how I want to do it. I want to look at Paul's words that Jason read for us in Romans 1, and I want to ask three questions. Okay, here they are. Why don't people believe in the existence of God? Number two, what evidence has God given us for his existence? And number three, what has the power to produce faith in God or God's existence? So, number one. Why don't people believe in the existence of God? Well, let's start with a definition of atheism. This comes from the Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Uh, Etienne Born is the French philosopher who defines it this way. Etienne Born says, Atheism is the deliberate, definite, dogmatic denial of the existence of God. It is not satisfied with appropriate truth or relative truth, but claims to see the ins and outs of the game quite clearly being the absolute denial of the absolute encyclopedia of philosophy. But one ramification of naturalistic philosophy like that, like that definition is how do you explain the existence of basic Things. If you do not have an intelligent, personal, and moral first cause. In fact, if you ask average students on college campuses all around America four basic questions, they cannot answer them. The question of origin. Where do we come from? The question of meaning. Why are we here? The question of morality. What's right and wrong? The question of destiny. Where are we going? And you will find that they are stifled and unable to answer those questions that as Christians we have such clear answers for. People do not know how to define these things except by way of self-reference. And it's for this reason that our culture has become so confused on issues of gender and sexuality. Defining meaning for oneself it's a moving target. I'm this thing today. I'm another thing tomorrow. 
and, and, and I believe this today and I believe something else tomorrow and it's a constant moving target because it is not grounded in objective truth and for that reason, self-reference is not liberating us as a culture, it's destroying us. So let's answer this question, why don't people believe in God? And there are a lot of different reasons for this, but verse 18 in Romans 1 gives the overriding reason for all refusal to believe in God. Paul says, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, notice these these descriptions, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Who by their unrighteousness suppress, suppress the truth. According to verses 19 and 20, people know there is a God and yet they suppress the truth. Why? Well, that's what Paul goes on to explain in verses 21 through 32, why they suppress the truth for verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, but became futile in their what thinking and foolish in their hearts and their hearts were darkened. So notice the source of unbelief. Source is pride. I mean, fundamentally, it's a refusal to honor God and it's a res- and it results in a futile mind and a darkened heart. There, in fact, in verse 22, their so-called wisdom is actually foolishness. And so they begin at verse 23 to pursue idolatry. Notice this. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. And man, does that ever come true when you go to India and you see people worshiping birds and reptiles and snakes. And, and so we just have a more subtle way of doing this in America. So Will's talking about that same kind of stuff in Japan. And yet in America, we have all kinds of idols that we worship, but but they're idols of entertainment and idols of comfort and, and, and idols of sex and power and money and prestige and title. But we have all plenty of our own idols that we are worshiping. But that's an amazing sentence. Notice closely what Paul's saying. Notice what's happening. This exchange of the glory of the immortal God for images. Think about this. God is being exchanged. Not just for a man. This is awful. Think about this. Or even for the image of a man. No, God is being exchanged for the likeness of an image of a man. That's three times removed. In other words, God is being exchanged for a copy of a copy of a copy is sort of Paul's idea here. Think about it. Muhammad Ali just died. And so he's all over the news. And 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 if you had an autographed picture of Muhammad Ali uh, with his signed signature on it, it was an official document. It was clearly his. All right, if you had that and somebody came along and they took a picture of that with their iPhone, you know, you ever taken a picture uh, of a picture with your iPhone and they do that and then they go to a copy machine and they copy it and then they take that copy and copy it again. How much do you think that copy would be worth? Like a nickel or something? And that's the point of what's happening here. In fact, what they have done, according to verse 25, is they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And instead of worshiping the creator, they worship something in the creation itself. And because of this false worship and refusal to worship God, Paul says three times, God gave them up, gave them up, gave them up, gave them up. Serious language. It's frightening language. Notice the parallels. Look at verse 23. 
Because they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, God gave them up. What did he give them up to? Well, to lust, impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies. And then again in verse 25, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the creator rather than the, watch, sorry, worshiped the creature rather than the creator, what did God do? Verse 26, he gave them up to dishonorable passions. There's nothing more frightening than God giving people over to themselves. And, and what, what he does notice what happens in verse 26 and 27. When God gives a man up to himself to dishonorable passions, what is the result? Verse 26 and 27, sexual dysfunction. And actually, in this context, it's homosexuality. Now, that does not mean, and I will preach a sermon on this in our last uh, objection, that if a person is living in a homosexual lifestyle, that they have no hope of ever receiving mercy from God. That's not what the text is saying. Okay? So, so there's great hope, okay, because there's great hope for sinners. So even that sin, okay, is, is able to receive mercy from God. But what God is saying here through Paul and through inspiration is that it simply means that the sin of homosexuality is a result of exchanging the truth of God for a lie. That's what happens. It's the result. Now that's only one result, but it's the result that's here mentioned. And finally, in verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, again, God gave them up to a debased mind. So so the first thing he gives them up to impurity. The second thing is he gives them up to dishonorable passions. And now he gives them up to a debased mind. And what does that produce? Verse 29, it's awful, awful, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. People full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliceness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Sounds like our culture, doesn't it? That's scary stuff. I mean, it's not just ISIS. I mean, that's just rampant. Cross age, cross socioeconomic standing. This is the kind of stuff that's dominating our culture. Do we think that rejecting God is pretty serious? Yeah, it's real serious. In fact, in a minute, I want to unpack some of those consequences for you. But for now, let me ask the second question. What evidences has God given us for his existence? Verses 19 and 20. How do we know God exists? According to this text, there are two answers. First of all, People have an inner awareness of God. And second, we have ample evidence in creation. First, people have an inner awareness. Verse 24, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. That's very clear language. The evidence God gives of his existence is in the creation itself. God's power and nature have been clearly perceived in the things that have made. That That's the way that we know God exists is by looking at the creation around us. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. All right. But before that, think about this. All people have an inner sense That God exists. Look at verse 21. Although they knew God, they did not honor him 
but became futile in their thinking. Notice that language. They knew God. But what did they do? They suppressed that knowledge of the truth. Sin, here's the point. Sin leads people to irrationally deny God's existence, to think irrationally, to not engage their minds appropriately. So Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Or how about these words from Psalm 10? For the wicked boast in the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord in the pride of his face. The wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. You feel that? And and that's why there's a connection between those who deny God and those who are living in moral rebellion against God. People do not want to acknowledge God because they do not want to be accountable to God. We hardly want to be accountable to the authority structures in our own society. Much less a God Because if God made us, that's the ultimate form of accountability. And who wants to stand before him someday and give an account? And so there's people, there's an inner sense in people that God is is there. But but what do they do? They have to continually suppress the thing, right? Because it bothers them. And there's a conscience thing that begins to work. So I like the illustration of a beach ball. You ever gone to a pool and you have a big ball that's inflated with air and you try to push it under the water? What happens Right. It wants to keep coming up. Right. So you got to keep got to lay on the thing to get it to stay down. But but if you let go of it, boom, it pops up. And that's like this with God. Every one of us in our hearts, we know that there's a God. And yet we push him down and push him down and push him down. And, and, and we come up with all these arguments, all these ways to say God doesn't exist. And, and every now and then, you know, something will come up and you just tackle it and get all over it again and try to suppress it. And that's what happens with suppressing the truth. And, and for Christians, this inner awareness of God becomes stronger and more distinct. Uh, in fact, in Romans 8, as Christians, we Paul says, we have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. And so this inner awareness becomes really strong for Christians. We have a sense that God is someone that we can relate to as Father. And we know him as his children. And so our inner awareness is actually, in fact, even stronger than the natural inner awareness of man. So how do we know God exists? We know that God exists because we know him as a person. He's a father to us. And it's very deep and intimate and real. There's a second way that we know God exists, and, and that is we have evidence, ample evidence in creation. Verse 20. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly perceived. Okay, it's not a doubt here. This is not like it's sort of been seen. All right. This is clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So the conclusion is they're without excuse. All right. Now, you have to accept that the Bible's true. All right. To affirm that statement. Okay, so even if you're sitting here this morning and say, well, look, man, that's great and all that, and I hear your argument and all that, but I don't, even, I don't even believe the Bible's true. Okay, that's fine. Let's start with where you're at. Just analyze the words themselves. Just think about it. Let's assume for the sake of your mind that, 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 that this is not true. Okay? It's not true. And the, the, the Bible's not true. Okay. I just want you to think about what Paul's saying anyway. Okay? Just feel his reasoning here. 
his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in in the things that have been made. Things are made. They're created. All right? Psalm 19 is an excellent description of this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. I love this. Day after day, they, that's the skies and the heavens, pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet, their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In other words, you look at the heavens and you look at the skies and they are absolutely screaming God's existence. Screaming. And he says, they don't have any words, but they have words. You don't hear anything, but oh man, do you see it? Do you see it? Who doesn't like to lay in a hammock and, and watch the sunset over the beach? See, see, even even agnostics and atheists and skeptics love to do that. They love to behold what we would say is the glory of God. And yet deny him and suppress him in that. And the human race most abundantly bears witness to the existence of God. God created us in his own image. In the image of God, he created us male and female. That means that we are like God. We represent God on earth. He has made us more like him than any other creature. Think about the complexity of our bodies. They didn't just happen by accident. They were created with purpose and, and with an intelligent design. I mean, just take a pen if you have it in your hand and draw a little dot on the palm of your hand. And in that little dot, that little space, in that little size in your body is, is a size that contains 10,000 living cells. And each cell is like a little city that has factories in it. That's creating life and doing all kinds of things in just the space of that 10,000 cells. And no amount of matter plus time plus chance can produce that. Everything in nature cries out, God made me. When we believe then that there is a God, we are not just taking a blind leap of faith into nothing based on nothing. We're not believing six impossible things before breakfast. We are reasonable thinkers and we have come to this and we have said the intricacy and the complexity of life and creation didn't just happen. That there's something here. There's an intelligent designer that made me. This complexity did not just sort of just happen. We're standing on an overwhelming amount of evidence found in, in the very words of God and the works of God. The words and the works of God. And if you don't believe in the words of God, then just observe his works. So either way, there's evidence for you. Everything in nature cries out. So what does a person who does not believe in God need in order to believe? Quite frankly, they need the same thing all of us need. They need the truth of God and the work of God, and particularly his spirit, to give them faith. And that leads us to our last question. So so you have a friend who's a skeptic. He's, he's a self-professed atheist. 
what 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 makes him believe like you can't twist his arm and say hey man believe 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 i mean that's not going to work you can't you can't argue him into it i mean like i said philosophy and logic and that stuff that's that's helpful but it's not going to ultimately work so what does he need here's the here's the last question what has the power to produce faith in god the answer is verse 16 and 17 it's all right here in the text for i am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and to the Greek for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for, for faith, for faith, just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So the gospel and the spirit of God using that gospel is, is, is what creates faith in the heart of a sinner in the heart of all of us. The gospel is the only thing that has the power to produce faith in the heart of an unbeliever. And and we must have it because we are utterly lost in our own minds and unable to come to God by ourselves. The, the good news of the gospel, so just receive this good news this morning, the good news of the gospel is that all sinners, no matter how bad, no matter how sinful, no matter how guilty, no matter how God-rejecting can be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel reminds us that God's capacity to forgive is greater than our capacity to sin. While our sin reaches far, God's grace reaches farther. The gospel reveals the radical contrast between the sinful heart of mankind and the gracious heart of our creator. And that message, according to verse 16, has inside of it inherent power. Supernatural power accompanies all proclamations of the gospel. Faith is created in the heart of man through the message of the gospel. The gospel has power to produce faith even in the heart of the most devout and committed atheist. And that's our hope. So I can't convince any of you, if you come here this morning, if you're a skeptic, I can't make it happen. But I can do one thing. I can declare the gospel to you. And if the Spirit of God decides to move then guess what? You will not come to him kicking and screaming. You will run to him because you'll want him so bad. See, this whole idea that people come to, to God against their will and, and, and they're just like robots and, and God has chosen them and they're just going to have to go because God made them. That's not what the Bible teaches. When God regenerates a man, he changes his heart and they scream, Abba, Daddy. They discover for the first time that they want God. He changes the nature of a man. And that's the whole point of regeneration. Is that it, 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 you, you, a new nature is put in a man so that he wants God. Nobody's coming to God kicking and screaming. You, there'll be a moment, yeah, where you fall down on your knees and you give up and you say, God, I, 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 I quit. You win, God. You win. There'll be that moment. That's conversion. But then there's just tears and joy and love and hunger and passion and excitement for God. And then everybody says, man, what happened to you? You got all weird on us. Yeah, you'll get weird. You'll get weird. But I mean, that's part of it. Weird for Jesus. 
I don't care. I'm just glad I'm saved. So let me close. What are the consequences of rejecting God? Well, in studying this week, I came across a keen insight from John Piper. Uh, and, I, and he drew a connection between that I just had not thought about before, between the two halves of verse 28. Just look at 28. We read this. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. All right. Now, the verse begins with since. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge that word see fit is dokimazo in Greek. And maybe a more a more helpful translation of dokimazo would be since they did not approve of having God in their knowledge. Be a very literal way of saying this. Since they did not approve of having God in their knowledge, God gave them up. Now, remember the picture back in verse 18, that they knew God, yet they suppressed the truth about them. So God is revealing himself to us in a multiplicity of ways, and that's enough for us to be accountable to him. And when he reveals himself to us, what do we do? Verse 28, we disapprove. I don't approve of you, God. I don't approve of having you in my knowledge. I don't want you here. I don't want you in my head I don't want to be thinking about you during the day. I don't want you in my heart. I don't want you in my life. I disapprove of having you, God, in my knowledge. Think about that. That's where atheism comes from. This is where skepticism comes from. And the insight from Piper was this, is that since that's true, atheism is not first an ignorance problem. It is a preference problem. The skeptic isn't sitting there saying, I just don't have enough evidence to believe in God. Yeah, you say that. But at the end of the day, you just don't want God. So can you be honest this morning? Can you be honest and say, hey, the real reason why I'm rejecting God is I can't stand him. I I challenge you just to be that transparent. Okay, you want us to be transparent as Christians? I want you to be transparent for a moment and just say, I I can't stand your God. All right. Now we can we have a conversation. You can't stand the God we worship. I get that. Okay? Because I I used to hate him too. In fact, there are times in my life where I still get bothered by things that God does. I get bothered when God doesn't answer my prayers. I get bothered when suffering comes into my life and I don't want any suffering at this moment. But let's be transparent enough to admit that inside we just don't like him sometimes. But that doesn't mean he doesn't exist. Daddy, I don't I don't like green beans. All right. I'm sorry, but you have to eat them. Green beans don't exist. (laughs) Yeah, they do, buddy. I'm sorry. Green beans exist. And you can say they don't exist all day, but they exist. The reality is you just can't stand them. You hate those things. That's where atheism comes from. Nobody's main problem is an ignorance problem. Our main issue with God is we just simply don't want him. I don't prefer God. I don't want him, okay? I I just don't want him in my life. And people say, I simply will not have God in my life. Just won't do it. I, I, I would just challenge you not to say that. Because you'll probably be the first one that God saves. 
Because if you say, I will not have God in my life, God's mercy will run you down. And his grace will envelop you. And you'll end up in a moment in tears and say, the very God I hated so much has loved me so. And I, and I bow. I bow to him. Now, that's the meaning of the first half of verse 28. The second half says, therefore, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to do. So there you have it. Four times, Paul says, the root issue of our, think about this, sexual distortions. It's so interesting he brings sex into this. Why does he bring sex into this? The root issue of our sexual distortions, both homosexual and heterosexual, are rooted in a refusal to approve God. It's a refusal to worship him as God. And here's the point at which I want to draw this message to close. If you don't want God and you refuse to take him, then everything in your world is going to go wrong. In fact, I would say your life will be ruined. And if not now, for sure, later. Three consequences to those who deny God. All right, number one. These are, these are big. There's no standard for morality. How, how does one actually arrive at moral reasoning or, or try to find an explanation for good or evil? Now, to be sure, naturalists have absolutely made an attempt to do this. But when you do away, think with me, okay? Everybody put the thinking cap on for a second. We're going to think here. When, when you do away with a moral point of reference, okay, you end up with a trivialization of evil. I'm not asking what is the standards for morality in America. I'm not asking a structural policy question. I'm not asking about the laws in our land. I'm asking you in your heart, in your personal heart, what is your standard for morality? Okay? Not, not America's, not Owensboro, not the city government. What is your standard for morality? And if you are your own reference point, you will end up trivializing evil. The Yale-educated atheist Richard Rorty had this to say. This is amazing. If moral imperatives are not commanded by God's will, and if they are not in some sense absolute, then what ought to be is a matter simply of what any one of us decides should be. There is no other source of sound judgment. And eventually, might makes right. If we get enough people together that agree, that's what happens. A Jesuit priest by the name of Frederick Copleston once debated, debated the famous atheist Bertrand Russell. Anybody heard of Bertrand Russell? Yeah? He wrote the book, Why I'm Not a Christian. Okay? And, and so Copleston debated him. And in that debate, Copleston pressed him on his basis for morality. I think, just parenthetically, I think the argument of morality is probably one of the strongest arguments for the existence of God. Because outside of God, you can't, you have no basis for morality. You just don't. And in that debate, he pushes Bertrand on this point. And he says, if you assume that there's such a thing as evil, aren't you assuming that there's such a thing as good? And if you assume that there's such a thing as good, aren't you assuming that there's such a thing as a moral law? Otherwise, Bertrand, how will you differentiate between good and evil? You know what Russell said? He said the same way I differentiate between green and blue. He looked at him and he said, wait, you do that by seeing, don't you? And Russell said, yes, 
So then Copleson said, so how do you differentiate between good and bad? Russell thought for a moment and he said, on the basis of feeling, what else? At that moment in the debate, Ravi Zacharias comments and he says, Copleston was a really nice guy. Because what he should have said is he should have looked at Russell and said, Mr. Russell, in some cultures, they love their neighbors. In other cultures, they eat their neighbors. Both on the basis of personal feeling, do you have a preference? Well, that's funny. But how can a man of such brilliance make such a profound error? In fact, he admitted later in his life, in a letter to the observer, he said, I do not know how to deal with the issue of morality. It haunts me. I cannot live as though ethical values are simply a matter of my personal taste. And therefore, I find my own views actually quite incredible. I do not know what the answer is. A stark admission from another atheist. But it's what happens when you abandon God in favor of self-referencing moral reasoning. All right, let's get street level. Songwriters are often better, more adept at communicating these things than philosophers. So let's get out of the armchair onto the street. Uh, the English rock band, Pastor Mark will appreciate this reference. Uh, the English rock band, King Crimson, put it this way. Knowledge is a deadly friend when no one sets the rules. The fate of all mankind I see is in the hands of fools. Confusion will be my epitaph. As I crawl across a broken path. If I make it, we can all sit back and laugh. But I'm afraid. Tomorrow I'll be crying. No standard for morality. Number two, if you deny God, there's no meaning. How do we arrive at the reality of meaning? What meaning do we attribute to life? Are we entitled to our own definition of meaning or does meaning come from a transcendent being? See, people try to find meaning in love and in romance and in identity and money and pleasure. But what happens? Let me ask you this question. Honestly, what happens when you've exhausted all those things and you still come up empty handed? Because unless meaning comes from outside of ourselves, from a transcendent being, you're going to be left hollow inside because all your pursuits are going to end up with a dead end road. See, the truth is we all have a longing for love and joy and beauty and no amount of quality or of quality or 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 a quantity of food or sex or friendship or success can satisfy you. We were made for something more. C.S. Lewis said it best. He says, I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. It's really helpful. Here's the thing. Loneliness is a terrible thing. All right. But it's really terrible when you've exhausted all the avenues of pleasure and you're still empty handed. Like when you've binged on all that stuff, on all that sex and drugs and, and, and when you binged on money and you spent it all and you've become successful and popular and you've had it all. And when you've binged out on all that and you still come up empty handed and you're lonely, that's a horrible place to be. And that's C.S. Lewis's point. We weren't made for this. We were made for another world. Loneliness has pointing you to God. There's no meaning apart from God. 
And finally, there's no standard for morality. There's no meaning apart from God. And finally, there's no hope. If death is the end and there's no judgment for people to face in, in an atheistic worldview, then there's really no difference between Hitler and, and, and Mother Teresa in the end. Now, let me ask you this question. If there's really no difference in terms of the fate of Hitler and Mother Teresa in the end, how does one hold to a worldview where that difference is met with no consequences? No consequences? No consequences. Well, let's just all like just be tyrants then. No consequences. If there's no moral law, there's no meaning. If there's no meaning, there's no hope. Nicholas Wolterstorff, a well-known Christian philosopher, lost his 25-year-old son to a mountain climbing accident. His reflections in that book are painful, painfully personal, and at times deeply just heart-wrenching. In his book, Lament for a Son... He writes the following. When we have finished, and and he's speaking as a dad who lost a, a child. So that's a different level of wisdom. He says, when we have finished conquering absence with a cell phone, and when we finish conquering heat with air conditioners, and winglessness with airplanes, and distances with transportation, we will still end up having to deal with the evil of our own heart. And the impending death that waits us all. See, the atheist existentialist John Paul Sartre had this to say on his deathbed. This atheist said, I have found my philosophy to be unlivable. And you know what his mistress said? She said he's losing his mind. But you know what I say? I bet you John Paul Sartre was never closer to the truth. Than in that moment when he realized that his philosophy was a dead end. But he died. How sad. How sad. And maybe you've come to the conclusion that you've missed life on the most fundamental level. And what do you do when you come to see that you've been wrong on these matters? Where do you turn for recourse? When all you've invested in has failed you. What's your plan for recovery this morning? And I'm just going to give you that plan because the whole hope of the resurrection is this, is that Christ has redefined all of history for us. There is hope in this life and there is hope beyond the grave in Christ. So Jesus came into this sin-cursed, dark, broken world to say, I am here to fix this. To fix this. And, And I don't know where you are in life, but if you're still rejecting God this morning, you are left with some really tough and unanswered questions this morning considering, uh, concerning origin and meaning and morality and destiny. And if your world is not adding up and if you're dissatisfied and disillusioned, where can you turn? And I would say turn to where the rest of us has turned, which is Jesus. Turn to him. Turn to Jesus. One more anecdote. Victor Franco said this. <clears throat> this, is a, this is Auschwitz uh, survivor. So in a concentration camp, he said this, if we present man with a concept of man that is not true, we will corrupt him. I became acquainted with the last stage of corruption in my last concentration camp, Auschwitz. The gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate consequence of the theory that man is nothing but the product of hereditary and environment. I am absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz were ultimately prepared 
not in some ministry of defense in Berlin, but rather at the desks and lecture halls of atheistic scientists and philosophers. If there's no standard for morality, if there's no lawgiver, if there's no God to be accountable to, burn them up. That's where Auschwitz got started. So a church like this has an immense responsibility for what it does behind this pulpit. And that is the main reason why we're doing this series is because we want to equip you to think. But more importantly, friends, we want to save your soul. And we want to lay a rock-solid foundation for a generation to come. One more story and I'm done. This is so moving. Matthew Paris, a journalist from the UK, was raised in Malawi, Africa. And he went there as a committed atheist in 2011. But when he came back, he wrote a breathtaking article in the Times. Here's what he said. I find myself shocked that I'm about to say what I'm going to say. It challenges every philosophical bone in my body. As one who has lived disavowing God and as an atheist, I am staggered by what I am seeing and about to state in this article. Africa is in serious trouble. And if something doesn't happen, it will end up with a sinister mix of Nike and the machete at the same time. What I have concluded is this. Africa doesn't just need another ethical theory. What I have seen with my own eyes is that what the Christian gospel did for the people, how the new birth changed their hearts. I'm amazed that I'm saying things like this. And yet I'm convinced an ethical theory is not what the African continent needs. It needs the gospel of regeneration and the gospel of redemption. And I would just add one thing to him. That's what the whole world needs, not just the continent of Africa. And friends, it's what you need. And if you're here this morning, you're never going to find it until you find it in Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. I love Romans 1. I thank you for the correction it brings us. Now, Lord, do a work in in our people and, and in everyone gathered or listening to us live on the Internet. And I pray that some fruit would come out of this for your glory, some saving fruit, some regeneration, regenerating fruit. Do what only you can do, Lord, and take what's so weak in me and... Make a make something live for your glory. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.